Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today's guest is Christopher Smith. He is a clinical professor in the School of Communication at USC's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, where he also jointly runs the Media Economics and Entrepreneurship Program. Now, why am I so excited he's here? Because he happens to have been my college professor at USC and my favorite professor of all time. Professor Smith is the reason why I love journalism so much and why I see the value in journalism and social justice working hand in hand. It was so much fun to see him and talk to him for the podcast. He is fascinating, brilliant, and so thought-provoking. And I am so excited that you all will get to learn from him today, too. It's almost like you get to sit in on one of my classes. He is just the best. And if you're lucky enough to be at USC, take his class. I promise it'll change your life. I'm so excited that you're here today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) This is a trip and so fun. So I want to take everybody back a little bit. And it's funny that you remember the year because I realized that I, I didn't, but I was looking through the notes from your call and you said it was 2002 when I was in your class. Yeah. Which is crazy to me. I had just started at USC. You had? Yeah. That, that was my first year. Okay. And where were you before? I was at, I was getting my PhD at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I wrote my dissertation back in New York City. I worked as a research analyst at a tech PR firm. And uh, when I finished, when I defended my dissertation, I got the offer to come to USC as a postdoctoral fellow. And uh, I started, and I've been there ever since. Wow. Yeah. So take me back. What does it mean to work 
in tech PR in 2002 because oh my God. this is pre-iPhone, this is pre-Twitter, yeah. Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, just the dawn of the consumer-facing internet. I mean, basically, when Mark Andreessen bought the Netscape browser company public in fall of, two th- of 1995, that started the internet frenzy, the dot-com mm-hmm. frenzy. And so dominoes, positive dominoes after that, Amazon, Yahoo, eBay, all those first wave internet companies came to market. And the excitement in the late 90s was just through the roof. It was mm. like the digital gold rush had begun. And so any young person in New York, the Bay Area, you wanted to be in that game. Mm. And so I was writing my dissertation on the way that technology spurs asset price appreciation and spurs the cultural phenomenon around asset price appreciations that we called bubbles. And so the dot-com era was a classic bubble, and I was already studying that. So as I was writing my dissertation, I said, well, it would be great to be even closer to the action. And so I also got a full-time job working as a representative for startups that wanted consulting on their communication strategies and just their market positioning. Wow. Yeah, so it was exciting. So when you talk about a bubble, asset price appreciation, Mm -hmm. can you tell people what that means for for people who don't uh, have a doctorate? Basically, when new technologies going all the way back to the steam engine and railroad occur, they transform society. Mm -hmm. They transform business. They transform the economy. And they also transform the way we think um, just in everyday life about what's possible, how we might behave, and what we can aspire to. And those are all natural byproducts of new inventions and and, and new ways of doing things, that kind of excitement. People place bets on how far the impact of those exciting new things can take us. Mm -hmm. And they literally place financial bets on that. And when you literally get like an ignition of excitement around a phenomenon, and a lot of people are placing bets, bystanders see all those people placing bets, and they Mm. sense the excitement, and they want in as well. And you get the positive contagion effect of people being really interested in this area, wanting to be in on it, and wanting to be part of the financial reward that's going to come from it. And when that becomes a mass phenomenon, it creates a bubble, because Mm. What that what's happening is people's expectations of the impact become bigger than the immediate near-term impact is actually going to be. And when you get a correction between those expectations and the reality, that's when the market goes down. That's when the bubble bursts. That's when the bubble bursts. And we saw mm-hmm. that with real estate. You see that all the time. That's a byproduct of 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 financial capitalism, you know, and innovation. But when the action is good and the music is playing, it's a it's a wonderful time to be dancing because mm-hmm. it's really catchy, it's really exciting, it's fun. Mm-hmm. And to be young and in the midst of that, it felt like the roaring 20s all over again. You know, like, you know, the, the excitement, the working hard, working late, mm-hmm. playing hard, staying up late, you know, burning the candle at both ends. To be in New York at any time as a young person is exciting. To be in New York at a time of that kind of game change is mm-hmm. particularly exciting. So it, it, it was really great. But with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, 
we know that a lot of the value that was initially created around those startups at that time didn't matter, didn't, didn't come to mean very much in a longstanding way. So, you know, we kind of know that those kind of periods are going to happen, but we also know that when the bubble burst, reckoning what actually mattered from that time um, is always a little bit difficult. Mm. And so were you writing your dissertation on these topics? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, you know, the idea is, is how do people come to adjust their everyday thinking to these new realities? Mm-hmm. What are the mechanisms of representation, of culture, of, 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 of just, you know, everyday life that adjust people's thinking to these new possibilities? These new possibilities always have to persuade people, A, that this is safe, this is okay, mm. this is going to add to your sense of security, and then on top of that, that you're going to have greater degrees of liberty from this. If you can do all those things, mm. lessen people's fear factor of the unknown and the new, and make them feel like they're going to be enhanced, then you can you can really make a lot of headway in bringing new ideas to market without much resistance mm. or less resistance. And so I was really curious about during that dot-com era, how were everyday people coming to make sense of the dawning of the internet? Mm. So every time you have a what is called a wave of creative destruction and new ideas are coming, you know, into the mainstream, analyzing how are everyday people in different pockets of the population with different degrees of stakes in the new in the change, how are they adjusting? Mm-hmm. That's always eminently fascinating. Because I think people today forget what the late 90s felt like. The internet was a great unknown. It was like exploring yeah. space. Totally. And and people thought it was a joke. Not only was it the great unknown, it it, it was something that people like a lot of new things that people don't understand they try to diminish it by making fun of it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, media companies, you know, you know, the space that you were, you know, no one took it seriously. Mm-hmm. If you go back to YouTube and you see these grainy pre-high def mm. videos of newscasters reporting on the dawn of the Internet, for them it's like this, this weird, faddish, marginal thing. And mm-hmm. instead it's become the spine of everything. Right. And it isn't isn't it interesting to think about, as you said, that the internet is the spine of everything, but in a way the internet is still in its infancy. It's kind of like a preteen. We have to raise it, we have to teach it how to behave, we have to give it rules and parameters because it thinks it knows everything, and it's creating a big mess when it's given, you know, unsupervised time. And and it's wild to realize that that we unleashed this thing into the world. And in a way, we have to play catch up and clean up. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we do not have the frameworks culturally or mm-hmm. or politically to really capture all of the implications that the Internet uh, has unleashed. Mm-hmm. And, and we are playing catch up. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a it's a messy process. So. I want to get into the internet with you and talk about USC with you, obviously, and our time there. And I want to learn about how you wound up at Wisconsin and chose this path for yourself. But before we go through your story, I always kind of like to rewind because I I sit with people 
And they're doing incredible things in, in the present day, and you have been for quite some time now. But I'm curious how you became like this. I'm curious about who you were as a kid. Were you so observational and interested in systems? Were you this this sort of strong presence, do you think, when you were 10? You know, who's Chris when he's a kid and where did you grow up? I want to I want to I want to start there. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, without going too into the weeds, I think if I look back on my childhood, growing up in northern New Jersey, 20 minutes outside of New York City, I think what really defines my growing up was being at the crossroads, at the intersection of a lot of mm. different cultural streams. Where did you grow up in New Jersey? I grew up in a, in a town in Essex County called East Orange. Okay. And I went to school my whole life in a town called Montclair. My mom grew up in Teaneck. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, that whole area from, I guess, Teaneck is where a school called Dwight Englewood mm-hmm. is. And that, mm-hmm. they were one of my school's main rivals uh, growing up. I went to a school my whole life called Montclair Kimberly Academy, private school in Upper Montclair. And yeah, that all the private schools in that region and inclusive of Manhattan and the Bronx um, of New York, those were our rivals and mm-hmm. going all the way down to Princeton. So, you know, I, I was I'm a product of that classic tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut kind of kind of scene. And what was going on there then? What was the kind of energy you were growing up in? I mean, I think anyone who's ever not to date myself, but anyone who's ever seen the, eight, the classic HBO show, The Sopranos, can get a little taste <laughs> of the fabric yep. of northern New Jersey and the aspect yes. of northern New Jersey. It's a very unique and specific cultural scene, mm-hmm. very, you know, old school immigrant based, um, very old world and tough. Like people from that area are like, you know, really no nonsense and 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 gritty and mm-hmm. and, and, and very proud of kind of no matter whether you're white collar, blue collar, anywhere in between, everyone has a hard hat mentality. Mm-hmm. Like everyone like is like not afraid to roll up their sleeves. And so I, I'm proud of being from that area because although I love living in L.A. and I'm not going anywhere <laughs> and I've been here 20 years, when you're from that area, you, you feel like you've got that inborn grit. And so, you know, New Jersey kind of gave me that. But for me personally, the intersection um, that I'm speaking about is, you know, my parents weren't from that area. They were from rural Virginia. Hmm. And so I kind of was like a first generation immigrant um, kid where my parents migrated. They were part of the Great Migration, the African-American migration Hmm. of rural Southern dwellers who just knew they were going to have more opportunities in the north and when my parents graduated from college in the mid 60s they were at the you know the great migration started in the early 20th century they were at the tail end of the great migration and they moved north my dad started a business and um new jersey became our home so every summer growing up i would go back to the rural area of virginia mm. near charlottesville that they were from and stay with my grandparents and and i'm actually flying back there this weekend and that is a very bucolic, like, 
scene, like just very idyllic mm-hmm. um, butterflies in the cornfield and mm-hmm. livestock and, mm-hmm. you know, your own crops and the whole nine yards mm-hmm. of rural life. And then I'm growing up in a place where when I look outside my school cafeteria, there's New York City. Mm. And also, when my parents arrived in East Orange in late 60s, early 70s, what greeted them upon arrival were the race riots of 1967 in Newark. So wow. that was their arrival was the beginning of white flight. So East Orange and Newark and many of these communities were communities where you know, European immigrants had lived for generations, um, Jewish, Italian, Irish, mm-hmm. and that's where they had planted roots and formed a vibrant community. And sad to say, as the historical record shows, the arrival of black migrants meant they're moving out. And so mm-hmm. they moved to the western suburbs of Livingston, Short Hills, Morristown, mm-hmm. and they became real enclaves, white enclaves. And Newark, East Orange, and those more industrial communities became black. And so my parents come from the rural South, raised me in a place that is going to become defined by white flight, and I go to a majority white affluent private school my entire life. So those are three domains that I'm connecting during my childhood, going South to visit my grandparents, being deeply steeped in the rural life of the South Mm. and all the cultural mores there, Northeastern urban living, and also totally privileged, affluent, private education and all that that brings with it Mm. from a cultural scene. And that kind so constantly, I mean, now they call it code switching, but constantly knowing how to navigate Mm -hmm. those worlds I don't know if it gave me a certain kind of charisma, but it definitely gave me a certain kind of cultural fluency in how to get along with people mm. because I didn't balkanize myself in any given area. I had black friends that were staunchly from the urban domain. I had white friends who summered in Nantucket every summer. Mm. I had you know, all of my relatives and friends and cousins in the South who picked blackberries at harvest time. And I was weaving in and out of all those worlds Mm -hmm. at a time of real transformational um, change. Being so steeped in all those different communities, as you as you explain, and also living through a real transformational period of this migration and this white flight and, and this, I imagine, really sort of ever moving feeling in the community around you. Did that create any kind of fear for you as a kid or or did you just know it to be true because you moved through all those worlds and and as you mentioned you just sort of learned how to behave in every arena that you found yourself in? Well, I don't I mean I think as far as I never felt any fear as a child in that sense. I was very motivated as a child, mm. because I knew I could see the the beauty of it is I felt secure mm. in all of those environments. So and I that feel changes ve- everything. Yeah, I feel very blessed that I had a very secure, intact household and upbringing. My extended family in the rural South were was just idyllic and beautiful and charmed, and I felt very welcome in the affluent white world where I went to school. 
Mm-hmm. And I felt very connected. I think, thankfully, I started there right out of kindergarten. So in many respects, it was all that I knew. Mm-hmm. And and I was I had a wide range of friends and felt deeply connected. So I never felt like I never had a place. I felt blessed in that I had many places mm-hmm. to call home. But I think I felt very motivated because I knew that there was a re- – I felt the momentum behind my extended families carving out of security in what could have been and was, quite frankly, a hostile, segregated environment in the South, Mm -hmm. that they had carved out a place of peace and tranquility from which to raise a family that could go out and spread out and be vibrant wherever they chose to move. Against Mm -hmm. all odds, they carved that out. And then my parents were very entrepreneurial, and my dad was a striving entrepreneur. So here I come, first born in my family. I have a, five, uh, a brother who's five years younger. I felt the energetic, motivational momentum of all that my ancestors had done mm. up until my parents' time to kind of move our family's destiny down the road. So I, I didn't view it as like a weight, but I knew I'm at this particular school for a reason. Mm. Like, I'm there to kind of advance myself and advance our family's destiny along the way. Mm-hmm. So I was very, very motivated by that continuum. Mm, that's beautiful. Because I, I, I know that sort of when your whole community feels as though it's going through a tumultuous change, it can be scary for kids who don't have language. And it's interesting that you talk not about a feeling of tumultuousness, but rather a feeling of forward motion. Like well, you were in this in this energetic part push. Of that, to, to make it really real, part of that is survivor's instinct. Mm. Because let's not kid ourselves. I could see that if you didn't keep if you didn't keep up with the current, as it were, you could be waylaid mm. along the trajectory of your maturation because I could see kids in my neighborhood who just my instinct was telling me that the cap on their aspirations was likely going to be different than mine just by dint of my parents' decision to be entrepreneurial and to convert their economic resources into a private education. Mm -hmm. They could have converted those assets into anything else, fancier vacations, a fancier house, whatever. They converted a, a, lot, a critical portion of it into me and my brother's education. When I would come home and I'd play football with my neighborhood friends in the street or play basketball in one another's backyard, you could just see different phenomena of urban life that your instinct, even as a young person, even maybe pre-adolescent, hmm. is telling you, Yellow flag, (laughs) yellow flag warning, like those are areas that could stop your forward trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, you kind of learned how to avoid certain pitfalls along the way because they're very organic to where you are and they're very real. To say nothing of the psychic risks of losing your way, navigating an affluent white world and where you live, knowing that many of those affluent whites fled because you were coming, you know, that could do a psychic number on you if you let it. So they're the, mm-hmm. they're the organic risks of attrition of how young black men and women, 
early ages in certain communities face great at-risk odds. Mm -hmm. And then there's the risk of what happens to you when perhaps you pursue inclusion too doggedly and give up all kinds of psychic comforts to be included in these other spaces of privilege. Mm. Either one can be a tax on your well-being and your eventual prosperity. It's a lot to balance for a kid, that balance of two worlds and making sure you feel full in both. Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, love Mm. carries the day. Mm. Love and substance. Pursuing substantive nourishment Every place you go, yeah. like dials you into the proper channels of, of just vibrant energy. Mm. And I think, you know, just by the way I've been raised, that's the way I'm geared is to pursue the light mm-hmm. and not the darkness or anywhere else. I like to go to mm-hmm. people who really inspire and, mm. um, and you know, love, you know, mm. like, like you, you, you gravitate into the light keeps you in the in the space of where love is most paramount. And you know, I think that no matter where you are, if you if you have that calibration and orientation, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You'll be fine. But it takes as they say takes a village. It kind of takes a kind of steeping in that perspective early on to kind of you know, coordinate your gears mm-hmm. for that journey. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get coordinated like that, it can be harder Mm. to kind of course correct on your own down the road. But I think I was really hardwired pretty robustly from the outset. So I'm very thankful for that. You, You make your classroom feel like that. Your classroom feels really steeped in, in a motivated, loving energy. I, and I don't, I'm sure all your students tell you that, but just in case, I wanted to make sure I did. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel blessed. I mean, I, obviously, we all, you know, if, if we're blessed, we have a lot of options. Mm. Certainly had options to how I was going to make a career. Yeah. But I liked teaching and education because there is a church-like quality to it. Mm-hmm. There is a the best part of church, not mm. the theological dogmatic part of church where you're adherent or you're out. But the idea that love is the currency and mingling souls is a moment. Mm. And the classroom and just working in research teams and all those kind of things that we do in educational, there aren't many things you can do, like the work you do, acting and creating, inspiring. How many careers are there where your job is to inspire people, mm. where your job is to like turn people on mm. as, as to what the possibilities for themselves are, mm-hmm. not the possibilities of your remuneration, but the possibilities of their enhancement. There aren't that many ways you can do that. And to, I just chose, I felt like my comparative advantage was in the classroom, that I felt like I was, you know, anointed and sort of that that was the place for me to be. And, you know, like I like being in those settings where you feel the love flow and you feel the positive energy flow and you feel that that ambition to enhance others flow. Mm-hmm. And to the degree, I mean, obviously, you know, the classroom is also very individuated and everyone's pursuing their own outcome. But when you can leaven that with any kind of communal energy – 
it's all to the better and everyone will benefit from that. And so mm-hmm. that's how I roll, you know, that's how I roll. Everyone does it differently. That's so cool. So how do you, because obviously I know you wound, you wound up at USC and became my favorite professor. You're at your private school on the East Coast. You wind up in Wisconsin. What's What's the sort of, what awakens in you as a student that leads you on your collegiate journey that eventually led you to my collegiate journey? What's What's that storyline? Well, number one, I mean, I think I wanted to go against the grain. So that's another part of my of my makeup is I like to take the road lesser traveled. Mm. And so I didn't I definitely wanted to go to a different part of the country. So at that time, things weren't as national and global as they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much kids who graduated from East Coast prep schools in that day went to East Coast schools, mm-hmm. liberal arts schools or the Ivy League. So all my friends were either going to Bucknell or UPenn or schools of that ilk, Smith, Williams, Amherst. And I was like, I wanted to be different. And so when I considered schools, I considered USC. And that was very exotic in Mm -hmm. those days. But I ended up going to University of Chicago. And I was probably one of a handful of people who went further west upon graduation. So that just dialed me into sort of like always wanted to expand and spread my wings. And at that time, the main thing that was happening in the world was that the media ecosystem was just blossoming and burgeoning forth. And in that day and age, the catalyst was cable television. Mm. And that was the MTV era and the (laughs) era of ESPN coming on the scene and and CNN and so those, seeing that ecosystem start to broaden the options mm-hmm. of entertainment choice and amplify the ability for a message to spread, as an undergraduate student in UChicago, I started to get really interested in the sociology of culture and understanding how culture moves the public imagination and has economic effects. And so when I came back, to, to the New York area. I worked as an arts and entertainment editor for four years. And then I, I, I just had a wonderful time in that space. But I wanted to deepen my sort of intellectual appreciation of these phenomena that were happening in the media world. Mm-hmm. So I went back to Wisconsin to get a PhD, and that's what led me eventually to USC. And what did you do for your PhD? I was in a media and cultural studies program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so we that program was all about studying the cultural impacts of media and how media really becomes the chief way that we make meaning of the world around us, mm-hmm. that it's no longer about making... It's not as much uh, the old framework of religion being the prism through which we understand the world around us. Uh, that was the traditional way in all civilizations, you know, mm-hmm. that, that religious basis was the framework through which you understood the world as you matured. Now it's media, for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. It's, it's media. And as media really intensifies and, and deepens into the fabric of everyday life, that meaning-making process gets more complex. Mm-hmm. So there's a never-ending range of phenomena to explore. And that was because I was in my program at the dawn of the internet, you're at that moment where, you know, um, kind of a a 360 multi-platform 
ecosystem was just beginning. So, you know, we, we, we were just at the cusp of, of looking into that. Do you think looking back that that was a wild time for your then professors to try to figure out how to teach you as students about what was happening because there was this unknown thing coming? Yes. I think the thing that really radicalized the classroom at that time were the racial dynamics of the late 90s. Mm. I arrived at University of Wisconsin. My first semester was the semester of the O.J. Simpson trial and verdict. And so just because things are so much more just on full blast crazy now, people also forget just how highly charged the cultural fabric was around race in the 90s. Uh, Mm -hmm. When gangster rap was rising in in the West, uh, you had just had the Rodney King incident in the early 90s. Um, and all the insurrectionary energy that came out of that here in L.A., and then all of the police and communal brutality that was happening in New York. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are numerous cases that New Yorkers remember from those years that, I mean, now we're remembering the Central Park Five. I mean, there you go. So, I mean, that was something that people were just beginning to wrap their heads around the, the whole idea of how media was a mechanism for people to discuss those events and whether it was pop music mm-hmm. via gangster rap or whether it was the 24-7 news cycle of the likes of CNN covering something like the OJ trial, just race and and the growing popularity of of Black American culture in popular culture, the crossover effect of how popular black expressive culture was becoming Mm -hmm. in those days and how it was becoming part of the basic cultural expression of all young Americans. All those Mm -hmm. things were happening um, at that time. And that's, for me, that was probably the main dynamic that was like central to kind of shifting the conversation because that's really what made cultural studies um, such a, useful tool to unpack insights from all those things because cultural studies, if nothing else, tells you that media matters. And traditionally, the humanities teaches you that hum- that media and pop culture in general is inconsequential, doesn't, doesn't matter at all, that the real stuff of life comes from economic factors and comes from more material factors in people's life and that culture is mean it is not important that's so interesting to me because i think of culture as the expression of who we are and economics and material things they're they're pieces of our lives but but the expression of who people are feels to me like a much bigger deal People are still fighting to make the narrative aspect of meaning-making matter as much as the material Mm -hmm. dimension. And there's a Nobel-winning economist named Robert Schiller who just released a book called Narrative Economics. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is, and his whole research project has been, to make hard and fast quantitative economists who gauge their view on how the world works strictly by the numbers 
mm. metrics to appreciate that the stories people tell about the world around them has economic effects mm. and that it's not just the numbers tell it all, but the stories people tell about the lived reality is just as meaningful. And so whether in the economics discipline, the media studies discipline, gender studies discipline, a lot of people have been doing the work of making the cultural realm appreciate it for what it is mm -hmm. um, real. And it's a lot easier now because culture is just so wall to wall that people can't ignore it. But it's still still a bit of an uphill slog from time to time. Hmm. So what did it feel like when you started at USC in 2001? And what did you come to teach? How do you, this is a question that I'm always bouncing around in my head. How do you, when you become a teacher, figure out what you're going to teach your students? How do you write your first syllabus? I can't imagine the terror sitting at the computer with the cursor and the blank page. Where do you, where do you start with us? Well, I think a big part of your graduate training is specialization. Um, and there's benefits to specialization and, you know, there's downsides. But in order to be marketable, you have to have a visible area of expertise. And that becomes what you get hired to teach. Mm. So media, culture, and your specific take on those areas and your specific area of interest in those areas becomes what you get hired to teach. So I kind of knew that that intersection of race the economy, and culture was my intersection that was going to kind of feed a lot of what I taught. So I came to USC to really broaden their appreciation for that intersection between race and pop culture. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, you're not taught to teach as a graduate student. No, there's no way you can really teach people to teach. You have to learn by doing it. And so part of every graduate student's career in graduate school is being a teaching assistant mm. where you get just the hands-on kind of proximity to running a classroom. But then always there's the different feeling of being thrown into the deep end of the pool and having to guide an entire classroom over a 15 or 10 week period. And, um, you know, but you know, it, it, it just comes with the territory. But I mean, I think the thing that, that was, interesting about coming to USC was USC was just beginning its trajectory of rising mm -hmm. in the pecking order mm -hmm. and, and, and having international stature. So I think when I arrived, I felt that surge that President Steve Sample mm -hmm. had kind of stirred. And so you really, I really felt like USC was a campus on the move. Mm -hmm. And my instinct was that LA was a city on the move. And I think I've been, both of those assumptions have really been borne out because LA and SC have transformed um, incredibly. But, you know, so when I arrived at SC, there was this, this need to pay more attention to media in all ways. And that was part of the reason why I was hired. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, the thing that had just happened was the attacks of 9-11, so I think the thing that was happening broader mm -hmm. in a geopolitical sense is this dawning awareness that the world order was never going to be the same again mm. and that there was a, a major shift happening in 
on the axis upon which the world spins, you know. And so I realized that I wanted to challenge myself to kind of open my mind up to the changes that were happening in a whole new space. And that I had been in New York kind of long enough and it was time to be at a different frontier and being on the West Coast felt like the place to be. Mm. So our class, Communications 499, Hip-Hop Nation. How did you remember that? It, and, and, the, and the subtitle of the, of the course title was, and I won't get the words perfect, but it was a something, I don't know if it was an education on or an, anal, an analysis of the history of black music in America from slave songs to modern day hip-hop. And I was like, what, it, what is that? And I want to study that class. And I think growing up as a kid in L.A. who also had a family in Jersey and spending so much time there in the summer, you know, my summers went from the West Coast to to the East Coast and being being in this really crazy changing universe of that zone of New Jersey and going into New York. And, you know, I like I went into college having spent the, my, the years of my high school career listening to Biggie and Tupac and and loving this sort of there was this energy there was this vibration of of rebellion and and when I look back now understanding more about culture from an educated and curious adult perspective than I did when I was a teenager you know you you look back at the influence of music. You know, I grew up in a house where we listened to Motown and Elvis and the Beatles and the Eagles. And and my parents were so curious when I started listening to rap. And, you know, my, my dad thought he was cool, like being able to talk to me about Run DMC. He's like, well, you know, I know some cool rappers. I was like, relax, Mr. Sweet Canadian Man. You know, and but I didn't know then how much even someone like Elvis, who my dad grew up listening to, was taking inspiration from, if you put it kindly, from black music. And it was just so – there was something about the title of your cor- of your class on the page that made me say I feel like answers to so many things I love and so many things I'm curious about culturally are in that class. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it was – I mean, first of all, having you in class was like a blessing and like a miraculous moment because it's so cool to see where you are now and all the wonderful work you've done and all the wonderful work you're doing and what you're surely destined to keep doing and all the impacts you're going to make because that was who you were then. You know, you were always leaning in to, you know, complicated issues and difficult conversations. You were always um, had that kind of sensibility of courage and bravery and empathy and really listening to people, like being very convicted in your beliefs, but also listen, you were a leader. And so you were always kind of like at the center and people always were rallied around you and you were always in the front row. And so I remember you vividly from those days. So it's 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 really heartwarming and gratifying to see where you've taken your ambitions from then till now. And it's it's what anyone would want to see, to see that that person has really kind of fulfilled 
what they presented then. So, so that being said, yeah, I mean, Thank I think that. that when we were together in that class, like I said before, there was that moment of cultural change that represented crossing over, that the mm. maturation of the cable media economy meant, and, and the maturation of hip hop's sophistication mm. meant that wherever you were in the world, you were receiving these hip hop driven messages mm-hmm. and energies. And so just being aware of that was something that people were really dialed into and what the implications of that are. And I think in terms of framing the class between how hip hop was one bookend and the slave spirituals were the other, black music always has had that aspirational yearning mm. for either salvation in the afterlife or salvation mm. here on earth. Mm. And But that yearning is the central mode of black music and that blues element to black music. And it's just morphed and taken different forms as we've moved from jazz to rock and roll to hip hop and R&B and et cetera. But that core is the same. So I think I probably wanted to capture that in the class. And I think at that moment, when you were referencing Tupac and Biggie, I think because of all of the racial conflicts and dynamics of that time, there was a certain way that rappers then were making the obstacles to their yearnings visible in their songs Mm -hmm. and also shifting the direction of their yearnings. So they were shifting their their yearnings to a more American dream, more consumption oriented vision of the American dream, and 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 that was new too. That the music was part of the radicalism was about accumulating wealth and displaying that wealth, and that that was a whole new phenomena that people were wrapping their heads around. Mm-hmm. And now, and so they were pretty much urgently saying. We want to take our culture and cash in on the cultural power Mm -hmm. that we have. And we want to monetize that. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a big part of of what was going on and studying all the implications of what does black politics mean when cashing in becomes the objective? Mm -hmm. How does that change the political traditions of Mm -hmm. black America? Well, and how does it make people uncomfortable when you talk about it in that way, cashing in on your culture, when you think back to the music we were studying, starting with slave spirituals, really means cashing in on everything your culture has been denied. And I remember we were analyzing how rap in that era was was very flashy. And I'll never forget, we talked about you, you put up on the board the image of Little Kim on the cover of Interview Magazine. It was a big yellow background, and she had, like, one of her amazing wigs on. And she was posed so you couldn't see her body, but she was nude. And they had painted her. A makeup artist had painted the Louis Vuitton logo on her entire body. So her body was representative of this luxury leather bag, you know, these luxury leather goods that to your point historically had been made unattainable to people who looked like her. And you talked to us about what a statement it was for her to say, no, I am the luxury, me in this body. 
I'm, I'm luxury fashion and how revolutionary that was. And we forget, we wouldn't think about that now, but that was a real moment for a black woman to set, to stamp her body with the logo of a French couture house. And I remember I've, I've obviously never forgotten it. You know, I was in your class when I was 20. So yeah, I mean, that's 17 such a years later, iconic photo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that how in the two decades since then, you know, the kind of self-branding ethos mm-hmm. has just become the order of the day. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like the first wave of that. And, yeah. you know, Rappers have a very astute sensibility. All cultural creators do, mm-hmm. by definition, is they're they're at the edge of what is possible to be thought, and they're kind of leading us forward in every arena of creativity. And so, in that rap arena, they were kind of leading us into this space of thinking about how yourself is a product, yeah, and that kind of losing the shame of that. And because of the urgency of needing to be included from ghettoized communities and mm-hmm. needing to rise from those communities, like that that having no shame in your game, as it were, mm-hmm. is necessary to make the relentless moves you need to make to change your situation. Mm-hmm. And we live in a time that everyone feels that kind of baseline insecurity now. And, we're, and 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 now we have the the media toolkit to translate those kind of anxious impulses we have to express ourselves and mm-hmm. be seen and also monetize those expressions. We now all have that capacity, but at that time, just the basic idea: have no shame to do what you need to do to express yourself and commodify mm-hmm. that expression and brand it. And license it, mm. and 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 view it as IP that you own, and can collaborate with other IP owners over that little Kim photo. That was the beginning mm-hmm. of that whole ethos. Now everyone lives that ethos. Right. Everyone lives that ethos. The whole influencer economy is predicated on that ethos, for good and for bad and for indifferent. And at the baseline, it's about that striving and that commodifying your expression. So cool. Are there things you remember from from that second year of class before I start asking you about how how things are moving now? I wonder if, because as you say, it was the second year of teaching it. What sticks out to you when you think back to the beginning of of your work at SC and and, and that class? Um, I think the things I think about when I look back are just how amazing it is to work with young people mm. who are who are coming into their own because you're continually re- renewed mm-hmm. and replenished and you know a lot of my friends they 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 kind of are envious of this space where you get to work with never-ending waves of really smart and precocious young people who energize you and so when i look back i really think that that's one of the things that remains the same mm-hmm. is that the level of energy at a place like USC is just so phenomenal. Yeah. And USC is such a incredibly optimistic, can-do mm-hmm. place. 
that, you know, from almost moment one, I felt like that was the place I wanted to be. And, you know, I, you know, I think that's what really defines the USC experience mm -hmm. is, is, is how, how deep to the bone marrow that feeling of, of energy and positive optimism is there. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing we're talking about the class, but so many people who are going to be listening to this haven't taken or, or won't have the opportunity to take your class. And for anyone who is at USC who's listening to this, you're welcome. You also have your new favorite professor. Can you give listeners an overview, uh, a little bit of, of what the curriculum covered in the course? Because we touched on it a little bit. And I have so many standout moments like the interview cover and, and you talking to us about, you know, Biggie rapping about a Cherry M3 and us talking about the era of how rap music and and people in New York City were using music and graffiti as protest with the subway cars. And, and I remember our analysis of slave spirituals starting at the beginning, but I would love for you to offer people kind of a, an overview of how the course works and what you're weaving together through it. Because I'm sure they're curious yeah. as we talk about little I mean, details. I think the main place of conceptual inflection is the way that culture is formulated at a time when our socioeconomic basis is manufacturing mm. and the way culture is formulated when it's our social economy is driven by communications. Mm. And it fundamentally rewires society mm -hmm. and the way movements occur and mm -hmm. the way goals are set. The targets that people set before themselves is like, that's where I want to go. The manufacturing era and the industrial era just kind of arrayed aspirations, targets, and conditions completely differently than what they began to do from the mid-late 1960s, certainly early 1970s, mm -hmm. going forward when it was all about deindustrializing and moving to a more computer-generated way of creating value. And the real philosophical shift at that inflection point in our system of governance is that we could no longer afford to help the less fortunate with treasury dollars, and that providing government spending for educational programs, public assistance programs of all types, needed to be shrunk so that we could spur economic growth in the financial arena, in entrepreneurial arenas, that we had to kind of, forgive the expression, but kind of cut the dead weight hmm. of society loose because from the mid-1960s forward, part of what the Vietnam War signified is that the world was becoming a more competitive place. Mm. And that the post-World War period of the U.S. kind of being the dominant player on the scene wasn't going to be the case anymore. And as the world became more competitive, the whole notion of providing a safety net was being shredded mm -hmm. and pulled away. And so it was become a lot more Darwinian. And you were going to have to kind of survive kind of on your own steam. And so what that meant was, is that black people who had always been at the lower end of the pecking order, at least during the manufacturing era, when there was also this presumption of we're kind of all in it together, mm -hmm. 
there was a clear sense, well, all I need to do is be included. And if I'm included, then I could do what everyone else is doing. I can be educated. I can live in neighborhoods where I prefer. I could express my preferences. Mm-hmm. I want to go to this school. I want to live in this neighborhood. I want to strive in this manner. But when things shift to kind of a more computer-driven situation where people are kind of fragmenting the social safety net, then it becomes a lot more complex. And the people who are kind of most at risk already, they become representative of the dead weight to cut away, mm-hmm. not to finance by alternative means and, and kind of enable with you know public programs, but to cut away. And so the hip hop artists gave expression to what it felt like to be positioned socially that way, to mm-hmm. be at that place where the transformation of society was going to be felt most harshly. And the Black music of the days of slavery, they express what it was like to be sort of utilized or positioned in a certain way in the modalities of that time. Rappers were expressing what it was like at, in their time. And what you can capture by taking rap seriously is just the sensuous way of what it feels like on the ground when these post-welfare state transformations actually occur, Mm -hmm. the pain that it elicits. And one of the main ways that 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 shift occurred was obviously mass incarceration Mm -hmm. and, you know, really hyper-policing, the war on drugs and all of those kind of things that was kind of like one of the ways that that this kind of neoliberal shift was operationalized. And so rap is really a soundtrack of that neoliberal shift, that movement from that liberal order of the welfare state and the manufacturing era to that neoliberal state of affairs where we're moving to a more computerized, digitized, knowledge-based framework of creating value. And the way you access that is according to your own entrepreneurial energy. There's not going to be any public pathways provided Mm -hmm. to give you an on-ramp for that. You have to figure it out for yourself. And so rap kind of really articulates what it felt like for them to have to figure all that out. Mm -hmm. Well, and when you are a community that has this generational impact of having resources withheld, and then suddenly you go through this mass cultural shift and you're told that if you want to get over the hump of the shift, you got to bet on your own resources. That's terrifying. It's terrifying, but it's also galvanizing because like Booker T. Washington's ethos was cast your buckets where they lay. Meaning, use what you have at your disposal Mm -hmm. and pull yourself up. Do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And so the rappers are like, we have this, we have cards stacked against us, but look at the ingenuity Mm -hmm. we see all around us. These incredibly brilliant creative artists. Mm -hmm. Let's let's make something happen with that. Mm -hmm. And let's tell the stories of what it's like to be rugged entrepreneurs in the underground economy making things happen Mm. where we are. And those are captivating stories. And it created a vibrant commercial market 
around those stories that continues. It is the ingenuity of saying, you might try to keep me out of that sector. Okay, I'll create my own sector. Exactly. It's a startup mentality. And, you know, in this era of, you know, valorizing lean startups and Mm -hmm. founders, classic founder startup entrepreneurial mentality. We're going to do this lean and mean and literally by any means necessary. And um, we're going to make it happen. And the rest is history. So that's what I think I was really trying to capture is that is that rap is a lens through which you can understand this 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 incredibly important transformation in the overall economy. Mm. That it's just one key lens through which you can understand it. Um, like rap now is a key way you can understand the continual evolution of our digital economy. Mm-hmm. You know, people from the margins are always on the front lines of trying new things. And music is always a space where the dispossessed can have a voice. And so you can learn a lot by paying attention to what's going on there about whatever might be happening. Hmm. What do you include? What are some highlight points that you include now when you have this conversation with students? Who are you focusing on? Are you are you talking about, you know, obviously it's a tragic outcome, but Nipsey Hussle, for example, and what he chose to do as a rapper, what he was doing for Crenshaw, choosing to live off Slauson, really invigorating his community and opening Vector 90 and talking to young kids from Crenshaw about finance. You know, that's a that's a neck. That's a that's a next wave of ingenuity there. No, you're so right, Sophia. I mean, I think development economics and really formulating in 2019, 2020, what does a development agenda constitute Mm. today is just definitional to our times. And it's definitional to a major aspect of our political discourse right now is how do we uplift? How do we develop? Like, what are the tools we have? So needless to say, we have some very credible and charismatic politicians with noble intentions who believe that a major aspect of development, community development, requires redistribution of resources, Mm -hmm. different types of levels of taxation, and allocation of resources in different ways. Obviously, that's a political trigger point in the discourse and always has been in the the time since we've made this shift towards smaller government being the order of the day. But redistribution is a major framework through which people understand a building block toward development. But then there's another camp that says growth is the way to develop a community. And I think that a lot of people on the progressive left are, for legitimate reasons, distrustful of the growth agenda. That they see that growth really enables a lot of the worst forms of exploitation and value extraction. I think when you look at Nipsey Hussle, I do think it's a bit of a corrective to that inclination to distrust growth, because I don't think you're going to be able to redistribute your way into evening the playing field, Mm -hmm. leveling the playing field. You're going to have to create grassroots forms of value creation through entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And I think Nipsey Hussle kind of represented that. And I think that before we started our conversation, we were talking about how the pendulum can fling from one, you know, do a 180. I think that we've, you know, we've got to not take the needle too far in the 
side of redistribution that we forget that growth is legitimate and growth is a way in which people have always bettered their opportunities. And that given, like you said, that young Black Americans, particularly in the inner city, have been the deck has been stacked against them from even attempting to be entrepreneurial. Why should we withhold that from them any longer or not cheerlead on behalf of that? I think mm. Nipsey Hussle's um, life kind of invites us to valorize what he was trying to do in Crenshaw by, mm. by sort of spreading the message that that's a viable way of changing people's opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to think about what's changed in these last, you know, 15 plus years in, in this really common cultural conversation about startups and entrepreneurship and, and how we can invest locally and what kind of change we're going to make and what kind of redistribution we want to have. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and I do think so much of the access to that information and to these ideas and to these artists and to these spaces and to these places around the world that we never really used to think we could go to comes from this internet economy, comes from this exposure to all things that we have available at our fingertips on our phones. And I'm curious how, with your background in media and in messaging and all of this, how do you keep up now? Because now your students in college They've been on social media since they were 10. They, they've had access to things that are just different for so many of us. You know, there, there wasn't Twitter until I was already out of college and on a TV show. So No, they're I, the smartphone generation. Yeah. Do, do mean, you feel like they're teaching you as well? Do they know things before you know them? Or do you have to be online more to keep up with them? How do you do it? Um, I think they, I mean, they're, they're, the the current generation's ability to process information is unrivaled. Mm. I mean, they have grown up at a, with a device in their hands that brings them a tsunami of curated and non-curated waves of information 24-7. Mm-hmm. So their ability to quickly sift what they're interested in and what they're not is is unrivaled. And they're... At a place like USC or a place where you know you're 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 around a lot of people who are who are who are really activated to lean in, just it's it's just incredible the the speed at which they're able to process things. But wisdom still counts for a lot. And mm. being able to see patterns based on what has come before means a lot. And mm. so I think what what students seek now is stewardship in not getting buried in history, but knowing enough about what's come before that they can be enabled to see new patterns mm. emerge. Because yeah, To properly discern what's coming at them every day. Exactly. And to have judgment. Yeah. Um, they, they, they do appreciate being enabled to have judgment. And, 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 and so I think that is a big part of the educational mission now. Because if you don't if you're looking at all this media, and I read a statistic a few years ago, so it's probably more, but a, few, a couple of years ago, I read a stat that said that we intake more media in every 24-hour cycle than had been created in the prior 10,000 years combined. So I think it's why people can 
quickly identified to your point what they're interested in. It's why we can often sniff out when we're being sold something inauthentic. It's it's why we can see patterns in the present exposure. But I'm so glad you bring up the importance of understanding your history and understanding the systems in which we live and how they were created and who they work for and who they don't work for because it can get really easy when you're so good at intaking media every day to assume you know everything because you see everything. But just because you know today doesn't mean you have a clue where it comes from if you haven't done your research. Absolutely. And I, I think you've touched on one of the greatest challenges today is that we are all really cocooned in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And I know you are well-versed in our wellness economy and the Mm -hmm. power of meditation and yoga. And there's power in the present moment. Mm -hmm. But the power of the present moment is stillness, not inputs. And Mm -hmm. so I think that where our media ecology is concerned, people get stuck in the present moment just absorbing all these inputs mm-hmm. and and that that's dangerous because mm-hmm. um let's face it the vast majority of those inputs are inconsequential meaningless distractions they're energy drainers mm-hmm. um and 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 so and you know students aren't always adept at how to put things together and so you know i think Teaching an appreciation of history helps people when they come back to the present moment to kind of zero in on what's really meaningful and not get caught up in all the all the distractions and the noise. Is there advice you offer your students for how to how to manage their online on screen experience? Not not so much because I you know I do think they're they're pretty media savvy. I mean I do think that having appreciation for the different news outlets that are steeped in standing by the information they present mm. is critical mm. that, you know, and supporting those organizations um, with your dollars. And, mm. you know, yeah, you know, I, you know, I think that those organizations deserve our support. And so part of what I do is just getting students to institute in their media consumptive behavior to make sure that you respect certain outlets above others Mm. and that you commit early on in drawing down information from those outlets and then supporting those organizations um, materially. Um, But overall, in my classes, I really stress that they'll be well served knowing some of the basic economic fundamentals Mm -hmm. of what makes media function as a business. Mm -hmm. And if they know those, no matter what the changes are, they're always going to ultimately come down to certain basics of creating a market. I mean, there are only a few ways to really make money from media. Mm -hmm. Um, And those ways have certain dynamics attached to them. Mm -hmm. And so understanding those dynamics can serve you well, and you don't get caught up in just chasing the flavor of the month. Mm -hmm. Um, So I... At my age, I can't compete in like knowing every person or phenomenon that represents the new thing, Mm -hmm. but I am pretty well versed in knowing why any new phenomenon might have staying power or might actually be impactful. Interesting. Do you, over the course of a class, follow, let's say at the beginning of a semester, some media phenomenon hits? Will you guys touch on it through the course of a semester to see what happens with it? 
I think one of the things I do more than ever is we try to find a real business case mm. that either a large established media company or startup has in their approach to a given market. And we frame that problem and we tease that the working out of that problem throughout the semester mm. in teams and different teams will either tackle the same problem or tackle different problems with different tools. But I think that really is, that kind of experiential learning model really is in keeping with giving students the skills they need to actually participate in what's going on and not just learn about it in the abstract, but actually participate in it. And when you talk about media models doing it right and when you talk about quality sources of well-researched, real journalism that also deserve to be financially supported. I'm curious, who who do you subscribe to and who do you follow? What are your what are your top outlets that you really, as an expert, believe in and stand by and, and pay for? Well, in the intersection of media and technology, I subscribe to a bespoke publication called The Information that a former editor from the Wall Street Journal started. Mm. And that's phenomenal. Like Silicon Valley tech coverage, you know, LA, Silicon Valley intersection coverage. That's phenomenal resource, the information. Traditionally, my daily bread, Financial Times and Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. every day in my driveway and online, Mm -hmm. and New York Times Mm -hmm. online and physical paper in my driveway on Mm -hmm. Sunday. Those are my three. And the global perspective you get from the Financial Times Mm. is just incredible. I think it's vital for people, young up-and-coming people today, to have a global perspective, you know, whether it's from the BBC or Financial Times or, you know, um, I also subscribe to, you know, the South China Post to get a, you know, a China, Chinese perspective on technology and innovation and what China represents in the global economy. So I think wherever you choose it, have some outlet that gives you a global perspective Mm -hmm. and doesn't view every phenomenon through a U.S.-centric lens. Because, you know, the the world isn't like that. And -hmm. and, um, we're we're always prone to being too U.S.-centric. So I think that's vital, is having some bread-and-butter outlet that gives you a global perspective that's curated Mm -hmm. and that they're willing to stand behind. Because obviously you can cobble together a global perspective from feeds you get from different people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But following those organizations that, that give you the platform to dive into a global perspective is key to get people started. And following the reporting, yes. not just the perspectives of people who you admire, but actual hard reporting. Hard reporting. And I mean, when you read the opinions in the Financial Times or even though a lot of their political beliefs are different than mine, the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. it's sophisticated, nuanced argument. Mm-hmm. And the more you get accustomed to sophisticated, nuanced yes. um, argument, you get accustomed to realizing argument is not all or nothing. Yes, It's about making cases absorbing other cases and participating in an ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not just putting people on blast and doing takedowns mm-hmm. and 
so forth, but 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 really having a a, a dialogue. Yes. And so I think that's what you learn from those kind of platforms. And I think to move away from this idea that you have to be ride or die or canceled and more into a space where we can see the ramifications of a lack of nuance. You know, if I may, that's what I view the Trump presidency as. There is a complete lack of nuance. This is just a person who says my way or the highway, but it's the way of a bully in a sandbox on the playground. It's unsophisticated and thus very dangerous to our policy, our foreign policy, our national security. And to your point, I don't agree with a lot of the political views in in the Wall Street Journal, but I read it for that reason. And I read and I pay for the Washington Post and I read yes. and I pay for the New York Times and I read and I pay for the New Yorker. Yes, and read I and subscribe. pay for the New Yorker as it's well. It's so important. And I love, oh, I love getting it in the mail. Yes. But I subscribe to- And it stacks up quickly. It really does. You've got to be, you really <laughs> yeah. have to be diligent. It's hard, but I do find that when I travel, I'm a little bit better because I read on planes. But, you know, and I also- follow and read the BBC and I follow and read Al Jazeera and it's so important and now I know I have to start reading the South China Times and I have to start reading the Financial Times so thank you for that. Uh, those I mean Financial Times is is incredible. I mean just so well done. But to your point, I mean sad to say for whatever reason and the reasons are legion, mm. we live in a time where nuance looks weak. Yeah. And people I mean, one of the main criticisms of President Obama from his opponent, political opponents, was that he was too professorial and that his kind of ways of communicating and his ways of processing information were, were like, ineffectual because they were too considerate of, you know, and, and so people want certainty, now mm-hmm. these are anxious times and they want certainty and nuance looks weak in those in those settings and so i was watching some news report i don't it might even have been fox news one of the rare moments when i turned the dial to fox news but a commentator was saying that one thing that the that the democrats have to understand during this this primary season is that they need to find a candidate that projects strength Mm. and projects like that commentator's idea of what being presidential was, was having a certain bearing in body language that right or wrong in the belief being expressed was certain. And he said, well, no matter what you think about President Trump, this is him speaking, when you look at him, you see strength. And for a lot of people, that is true. Wow. They see someone who, if someone attacks him, he attacks back. They see someone that, whether he's right or wrong, mm-hmm. he just says it with force. And that's what they want. Mm-hmm. They don't really care about the nuance. They just want the strength. Which is so strange to me because I feel like the, those qualities you're describing, if we can call them qualities, we all were taught not to become during recess. You know, don't be a bully. Don't don't claim that you know everything. Don't. It, it's so strange to me because I think the idea of being professorial, obviously, as I said, across from a professor, <laughs> the idea of being willing to listen and intake all information and really deduce what's right and what's best and what works for the most people, those are things I, I so admire. Yeah, I think that... People who study populist movements suggest Mm. that at times of maximum 
uh, or times of high rates of change, mm. anxiety creating rates of change, people turn toward figures that represent strength. That's the danger of fascism. Yes. Is that that populist desire for certainty can trigger a fascist groundswell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, around the world, there's risk factors for that right now. But the baseline is that these are the, the, the degree of which to which everything is complexifying mm. is stunning. Everything is super complex and people mm -hmm. want people to simplify everything for them. Mm. And, and it's a main, it's a huge challenge we face. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious too, what you think the role of the internet plays because, you know, we talk about trusted journalistic sources, which are always the people who I believe we should go to. But so many people get their news, as you mentioned, from Twitter. They get their news, unfortunately, from Facebook. And we looked at the, the day that we're recording this, Twitter has just announced that they will no longer be accepting any ad dollars for political ads. Politicians on any side cannot buy ads on Twitter anymore. While Facebook is saying it will not monitor any language used in ads by politicians, effectively allowing them to lie in any way that they choose, which we've seen the dangers of in, you know, debunked videos. There was a there was a scandal created in videos shared on Facebook that claimed that, you know, Planned Parenthood was selling baby parts, which was actually not true. It was doctored video. It was incredibly damaging yeah, to deep the fakes. Yeah, deep fakes. It was incredibly damaging to millions and millions of women who only have access to their health care and their cancer screenings at Planned Parenthood, to men who get their health care at Planned Parenthood. And and we see Facebook in this moment where Twitter is saying, no more political ads, we're not doing it. We don't want to risk that people could be persuaded or or that their election, you know, that our elections could be affected by Twitter messaging because we can't possibly police it. Facebook is saying, we're not going to police it. Do whatever you want. And Facebook has just made, much to my horror, Breitbart, one of its trusted sources of news. And a journalist who I deeply respect, and I'm sad that I have to say this, but we live in a world where I'm scared that if I name him, he'll get trolled online. The day that that was announced, a journalist retweeted the news about it and said, Breitbart wrote a hit piece on my daughter when she was 13 years old. They are a dangerous incredibly weaponized, vitriolic, essentially hate platform. And Facebook is giving them credence so as to publicly be able to say we're not, quote, picking sides. But when you don't pick sides between truth and lies, you are, in my estimation, paving a very clear runway for fascism. And so I'm curious what you think what do we do here and what do corporations that aren't news outlets, what do they have as far as responsibility in this game? Well, I think, you know, what's happening is we're catching up to the changes that the platform mm. economy hath wrought mm. in our lives. And that's going to require a shift in our government. And we're going to need to create a agency or expand the function of the FCC to have a division mm -hmm. that exclusively looks at the digital media economy mm -hmm. that we've been trying to kind of have oversight minimally to the digital media economy. And to the extent that we have any oversight or assumed any oversight of it, it's been according to the rules of the old days of publishing 
and broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And it's a mismatch. And so one of the greatest areas of opportunity for students of mine and young people the world over is to carve out meaningful policymaking careers at that intersection Mm -hmm. where content people talk to technologists. Can you talk to me about what you mean by that, a meaningful policymaking career? What are what are suggestions for that? I mean, in Washington, D.C., we have an absence of young people who understand technology. Mm. The people, and, and this is not ageism, but this is just quite simply, people of a certain generation don't appreciate how different the landscape is now. Mm -hmm. So they don't even know how to ask the right questions, Mm -hmm. look in the right places, think in certain ways, consider the implications. So there's a ripe opportunity for a whole new generation of young professionals not to continue going exclusively to work for the platform companies themselves Mm -hmm. for their for their various divisions, including their government relations arms, but to work in government to make policy over these areas Mm. and to have uh, enough facility in speaking engineering speak Mm. that when people from platform companies come and talk about the way their their algorithms work and the way their philosophies of what their platform is all about come to speak, that you're articulate and fluent in how to speak back to them Mm -hmm. in a language that they understand, but in a language that other people, the mainstream, understands as well. And I think for our school, the Annenberg School, we're very uniquely suited to prepare students for that. But overall, I think that we need to recognize how powerful these platforms are in creating the dynamics where we make meaning of our lives. And number two, that these companies depend on aggregating large audiences Mm. for advertising and that they could care less what aggregates those audiences. And we know that things that are charged get people's attention and they can stack ads against that. And that's the business model. To shift the business model at Facebook to embrace that we are a media company that informs the way people understand the way the world works, Mm -hmm. requires them to build out a completely different costly infrastructure. Mm. And that reallocation of dollars, they're not interested in. So the same kind of obstacles against a reallocation of resources in oil and gas extraction Mm. and building out a new infrastructure for a green economy, recognizing and acknowledging that this change has to happen is the same reason why Facebook Mm -hmm. is not shifting gears because they don't want to change. They don't want to reallocate resources. It's too expensive. It makes me crazy though, because the resources exist both for us in transferring from fossil fuels to a green economy and for Facebook, you know, when, when the heads of the company have billion dollar salaries, the resources exist. And, and I guess where I get confounded is that I, I feel that we as the American public deserve better. We deserve those resources to be allocated for the betterment of all of us. I agree. And I think in both areas and in many other areas, this is a moment where the courage of our convictions is required. Mm. And specifically in this digital media economy, 
we must hold our polit- our elected officials accountable mm-hmm. to hold Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook accountable. They can't be left off the hook mm-hmm. for political expediency's sake. Right. And to your point, we do need young people to know that there will be this job market and that they can create this job market for this sort of new tech policy division, department, sphere in government. And I'm hoping that anyone who's in college is listening to this wants to go there, please go there. And that makes me feel hopeful because I do believe that with, with us, the demand is high for societal betterment. And if we do higher education differently, Mm. we can also train engineers to have a more humanistic outlook. Mm -hmm. It's both educating humanists to understand the language of technology Mm -hmm. and the the way technology works Mm -hmm. um, and the way business models are layered on those technologies better, but also that the engineers are working with humanists at the earliest stages of how they learn how to build the things they build, and take humans into account and take the uh, social spillovers of what they build into account as early as they can. You can Mm. never always be in advance of unintended consequences. And Facebook was made with the noblest of intentions, and it's changed the world in so many wonderful ways, but it was never made with any humanistic outlook in mind, and that's got to change going forward. Our motivations there have to change. Absolutely. Part of that change is in August, the Business Roundtable collection of the CEOs of the most powerful companies in in America said that instead of thinking purely about shareholder value being the watchword and the metric for judging business success, companies need to be judged and operate according to stakeholder value. So from climate change to platforms, it's about with that change in outlook, Companies are incentivized to reward their top decision makers to think about those humanistic impacts Mm -hmm. as part of their incentive structure within the company. Mm. And and so I think we're seeing the – and a lot of people are cynical about that business roundtable proclamation. But I do think that as it becomes specified in how those stakeholder interests are actually accounted for – We'll we'll definitely move the needle, and I think we're just at the early days of figuring out how to actually measure what we want to see happen Mm. in the platform space. Mm. I love that. And we do. We have to consider our impact outside of ourselves. It can't just be any longer a return on investment, Mm -hmm. profit margin. Mm -hmm. That's your report card. Um, that, yeah. th- that can't be anymore because if that is, you're going to continue to invest in the fossil fuel economy because mm-hmm. that is what's returning on established investment. You're going to continue investing in Facebook's established business model, Google's established business model, because they're money, they're cash engines. Right. So once you move away from rewarding businesses purely for returning profit, you can, you, you can get somewhere. But it's, it's going to be hard. Mm. All right, we need a whole new class of leadership in Washington, clearly. Something I do want to bring up, just because it's something I find inspirational about you as a former student and obviously as a person who loves Annenberg and USC, when we talk about, as we have been in this very macro way, about how we 
think about how we're affecting those outside of ourselves in our immediate sphere. You, as you know, my former professor and still a current professor, have always been in my memory and in all of my continuing experience with you, such a supportive human being. And for me as a young girl, you were you were the first person who ever told me I should have my writing published. I'll never forget it. You said, maybe not while you're in college, but when you're ready, mm-hmm. you come talk to me. And you've always, in, in this sort of modern lexicon that we have now that we didn't have then, you've always been such an incredible ally. And as a, as a man in a position of leadership, you founded the Women's Leadership Society at Annenberg, and it's the first professional developmental organization of its kind under the Annenberg umbrella. And I guess, first, I want to say thank you. And, and second, I'm curious, when we think about widening our sphere of impact, what, what motivated you to do that for the, the women at Annenberg? I just, I saw at Annenberg that all of these brilliant young women didn't have a space to have difficult conversations about how they viewed the world. Mm. And that a lot of times outlooks are just assumed that they're just going to happen. But people need spaces to talk. Mm -hmm. They need spaces. And going back to Virginia Woolf, this idea of, Women need a room of one's own. Mm. <laughs> Women need a space to and, and, and Virginia Woolf's point was that a room of one's own required women to be financially independent. Mm. That as long as Victorian age women required the man of the house to finance their every aspiration, they were disempowered. And so a room of one's own was her metaphor of saying that in various ways, women need spaces and vehicles of empowerment that are exclusive to them. So, like I said, I approach my work from a standpoint of love and substance. And I just continually saw that so many of the most substantive people, the woman sitting across from me, were women. And it will it might surprise you, it might not. But every time I would bring in a C-suite level, game-changing person, of a certain age that was male, a CEO, a CFO, a mm-hmm. CMO. And they would walk into my classes. And one particular year in particular, when just by happenstance, one of my classes was all women, 25 women. And every C-suite level person that walked in to speak with us that semester literally did a double take mm-hmm. when they saw it was all women. And what that alerted me to is that Men don't think they're passing the baton of leadership to women. Mm. If you're surprised when you're coming to impart your wisdom of your experience to young people and you express shock that the people you're speaking to are women, Mm. that's meaningful. That means that your assumption is I'm not transmitting this vital information to a constituency of women. I'm mm-hmm. not thinking of them in that way. And it that was number one. And then it occurred to me as well that when I asked my students at that time their interest in being leaders, and this was right around the time that Sheryl Sandberg was publishing Lean In, but it hadn't happened yet, but it was in that space, most of my brilliant young women, when they raised their hands, very few of them raised their hands when asked, do you see yourself 
being a catalyst for change in a leadership role. And I was like, why not? And as we talked about why not, I realized because we couldn't continue the conversation like we should and could in that classroom setting, I said, we need an auxiliary space for women to develop belief in their capacity and belief in one another Mm -hmm. and an outlook that says leadership is okay. Mm -hmm. And if we need to bring in primarily women game changers to help inspire them, Mm -hmm. then so be it. Um, But obviously men aren't precluded from coming. But the idea is have a space at Annenberg for women to connect, have a space where they can be inspired, Mm -hmm. and have a space where they can be informed Mm -hmm. about the issues that matter to them, either Mm pre-professional or just in their lives. And so I love my students, and I love all my students equally. And I realized a constituency among the students I love, my female students, had a particular need, as I saw it, Mm -hmm. for a room of their own and Mm -hmm. a space to, to grow their Outlooks. Because we have to unlearn society's messaging that we don't get the baton. And that requires extra effort. It happened each and every time mm. a senior leader came wow. from any given company wow. um, that they were surprised. And I was always kind of like, why are they surprised? Mm-hmm. Or why does it even why does it even register? Mm-hmm. Like humans are humans, like males, mixed groups you know, females, whomever, if a human being is there, you vibe with them and engage. But something about the gender dynamic of seeing all women just caused these men to be back on their heels. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and if I picked up on that, I know that my students picked up on that. Yeah. And that sends a subtle and not so subtle message about your legitimacy yeah. as the next in line. Um, and so we... I just felt like I needed to bring resources to bear to kind of advance our Annenberg women as best I could. Mm. That's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, they call it being an ally now. Mm -hmm. I don't think to be an ally, you need to have a particular interest in any area. You just have to have an interest in helping those that need help. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But for someone who actually gets in and does the work to create a systemic change, you aren't actually just an ally, a a term that I was taught by my friend Lovey, who talks about how women who look like me need to show up for women of color like her. She's like, I'm done with the allies. I want you to be my accomplice. Like, if I'm going to get arrested, I want you to get arrested too. And there's a real thing. So I, I want to pass the baton from women to you as a, as a man to say, like, you're, you're fully in accomplice territory. And thank you. I mean, they call, I mean, (laughs) Another word they use is a champion. Yeah. That, you know, can you champion the ambitions of others? And I think that that's, I mean, the whole professoriate has been about championing the the next generation. At the doctoral level, you literally champion the next Mm -hmm. generation of professors. You've always been such a champion of us, though. I've been championed my whole life. And so I feel like it's it's just giving back and circulating the blessing. Yeah. I, 
<laughs> I actually forgot about this, but you'll you'll love this. So speaking of your former students, me and Allie McGill, who used to be my roommate, mm-hmm. who took your class mm-hmm. together, we were both at Can Lion this year, you know, mm-hmm. big advertising and media summit in France. It's a whole situation. And she's there with her company and I'm there to speak. And we're just like, isn't this crazy? Like, remember when we were in college and we lived in a room that was, you know, 300 square feet and maybe not even maybe half that. We were, we were laughing about it. And she said, do you know what I remember from college? She goes, remember Professor Smith? And I was like, he's coming on my podcast. And, uh, and she said, yeah, do you remember when there was a day when he said, you know, and it was probably after some big, like, you know, USC weekend, we all had papers due. And she goes, he told everybody that everybody turned in a half-assed paper. He said, except for one. She was like, do you remember this? And I was like, no. And she said, he read a paper to the class and then afterwards put it down on your desk. And I was dying laughing. And all my now coworkers looked at me and said, why is that not surprising? And I was like, I'm so mortified. And also that's really true. And I was like, I wrote really good papers in oh that class. Oh my God. Um, but but yeah, she said he read your paper to the class and I was your roommate and I was like, she can write a paper like that in a day. And I, and I said to her, what occurred to me now is that not on any subject, but I was so invested in your class because of the creative ways that you taught and thought and teach now and think and the way that the ways that you invested in and championed us that I would I would sit down to write a paper for class and I'd wind up writing for eight hours. I would just do it all day. I was so into what we were doing that I didn't want to get up from my work. And I think it's very rare when teachers and professors can make your work feel like play. Yeah. I think that in all of our lives, in all that we do, whatever we do, if we can find that element of coaching others Mm -hmm. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that dynamic of, of 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 being a coach and mm-hmm. being a champion and making people see the power of their own way of viewing things mm-hmm. is is just a real. It just makes me very fulfilled. When you talk about being championed and you talk about learning to coach, I'm curious if that comes from perhaps some best advice you were ever given. And then I wonder what advice you would give to students now who want to study journalism. Mm. Well, I would say, interestingly enough, I mean, I'm sh- I mean, I've gotten so much good advice mm. over the years, but I'll go back to USC and say that a kind of way of thinking that got deeply in my bones and that was a part of the USC climate when I got there was when Pete Carroll was coach, Mm. legendary Pete Carroll. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you were just at the beginning of what was going to become the Pete Carroll era era, of just USC, just dominance in football and just, you know, what that brings to USC's campus when the football team is clicking on all cylinders is next level. But Pete Carroll, this book he wrote and this phrase he had, win forever, that to me, that because Pete Carroll like epitomized that kind of win forever optimism that if you that if you have the right, if you find the right frequency of vibration, of positivity, it'll just keep going. Wow. And until the scandal at USC hit that caused Pete Carroll to move on, mm-hmm. we pretty much looked like we were in win forever 
mode. And Pete Carroll's gone on and taken his philosophy to the Seattle Seahawks Mm -hmm. and continued his winning ways. Mm -hmm. And what that dialed me into is that you can't, you won't always win, but you will always be going in a positive direction Mm -hmm. if you have a certain attitude. And so that win forever ethos like really stuck with me, you know, as, as to like, you know, if you can like kind of generate a kind of way of treating yourself and a way of treating others and a way of forming teams when teams are necessary, you can enter any battle with what we at USC call that fight on mentality and that stay in the fight mentality. And it's, and it's real. So, you know, I think it's not so much advice, but I try to enter situations with that spirit of, you know, of just positivity. Mm -hmm. And for me, Pete Carroll really kind of like, like steeped me in that. Wow. That's so cool. I like it as a mantra. I like it as a, as a choice of how to live because it, it almost harkens to me that idea that if you make decisions, even when we're talking about policy, Short-sighted policy decisions become scary for the future of humanity. If we're thinking about how do we do things that mean we, as a collective, win forever, we make better choices. We shoot for longevity. Absolutely. And sustaining. And mm. I guess to really spell out the the kind of basis of, of Pete's phrase, it's love, it's trust, mm. it's honesty, mm. it's consistency, and it's willingness to compete. That when you put those five things together in a team setting and in the setting of yourself, a willingness to compete, honesty, truth, accountability, love, you've got the recipe for magic. And that magic can be sustained. And it's a framework that as the players change and as our individual lives evolve and change and we become different types of people because our capacities change as we age or whatever. When you keep that basic framework, love, accountability, honesty, trust, you're kind of good. Yeah. No matter what. And 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 it's like organizations that build that in are winning organizations. Mm-hmm. People who build that framework into their lives are winning people. Mm-hmm. And right now, going back to some of the macro conversation we were having before, our country is struggling to refine that framework as the basis for our national dynamic. Yes. Accountability, love, honesty, mm-hmm. you know, all those things. Nuance. Nuance. So, so so for young students, how do you offer a version of that advice to them? What what do you think people who want to go into journalism should keep in mind? I really believe that people going into media and journalism today can't be risk averse. Mm. They have to be willing to take risks. And that's hard for a lot of young people because they might be burdened with debt and taking Mm. risk is scary uh, in the extreme for them. But if you take risks, you can make change. Mm -hmm. Um, If this is not a time to play business as usual, we need to shake things up. And we need to do things differently, um, but still have that core framework of, of fundamental ways of treating yourself and treating others and including people and bringing people in. But going into journalism and media now, you have to be willing to do things differently. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you're if you're not, you know, you're already committing yourself to kind of obsolescence. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for that. And the other thing is, in terms of taking risks, go big. Go big. Like, like think big. Like, and, and, like, get a, like, don't be afraid of your own dreams. And mm-hmm. I think that's what you represent so well is from an, from an early age, you kind of weren't daunted by your own imagination of what you might be capable of. And other students that I remember from your era, like people you might remember, like Alexis Jones and people who got into activism and people who became entrepreneurs, this idea of of, of not being afraid of your own vision Mm. and believing that you can be the agent of change, that's, for me, what this generation has as an opportunity like none other Mm. because they've got tools that no one else has ever had to actually make those dreams realities. And the thing that kind of troubles me a little bit is that for various reasons, from the debt overhang to other reasons, even though all these tools exist, a lot of young people are more afraid of taking risks Mm -hmm. than ever before. And, and, and And I think that's something that speaks to they don't feel like there's a foundation in the culture that gives them that feeling that there's something to fall back on. Not a safety net per se, but just a trust factor mm-hmm. that everything will be okay if I take this risk. And I think that that should inspire us all to kind of come together as a country and make sure that this generation and the ones that come later have that baseline, we will be okay. Mm. We will be okay. And, 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 and so I think people should take risks, believe in their own dreams, and trust that the things will happen to make sure that everything will be okay, no matter what happens. Hmm. Okay, one more. The title of the podcast is called Work in Progress. I wonder when you hear work in progress, what's the first thing that comes to mind as a work in progress in your life? Work in progress to me means peace of mind with change. Because Mm -hmm. at my stage of life now, with two children that are now becoming adolescents, young adults, just making sense of how they've changed is just makes my mind like just swirl. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, work in progress is we're always working to kind of make sense of what's changing. And for me, like a, like the work in progress is like learning how to kind of like activate that calm in the mm-hmm. storm. And so I'm really into meditation and really into yoga. And I, and I love what that teaches you about practicing your own calm because what they teach you in meditation is the art of meditation is not being in that space where your mind is empty and you can look through your third eye and you can kind of feel the kind of spaciousness that you can create by, you know, being at one with your breath and so forth. But it's the fact that you'll never master that. You know, meditation Mm -hmm. teaches you that you never master that and that your mind, just by definition, is always going to move and wander and, as they put it, be the monkey mind that hops from one thing to the next – But the beauty of meditation is knowing you can always come back to that calm Mm. 
And you can always reactivate your breath and reactivate your awareness of where you are and who you are, starting with who you are is your breathing. Mm. And from your breath comes everything else, your heart rate and everything else. And and so that's a never-ending work in progress. And so for me, that really is one of the things that work in progress means is, is coming back to yourself and committing to always coming back, committing that that's the work, is always committing to return to that effort to be in sync with who you really are and who you're really intended to be. I love that. Thank you. Thank you I for having me. I could just talk me. to you all day. Thank you for having me. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Crillian Anatomy. <laughs>